I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. Drew Gilpin Faust was the first female president of Harvard University and is a noted historian, particularly American Civil War history. In Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century, Dr. Faust puts her Civil War scholarship into greater context by turning her gaze on herself. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on September 20th, Dr. Faust chronicles her journey from an upbringing that tried to steer her into being a Southern belle to civil rights activism in college that took her to Selma. When I saw the heads being bloodied on the Pettus Bridge, when I heard Martin Luther King say that Americans should come and bear witness, when I thought about the people I had gotten to know the summer before, young African-American activists in the South who had been my companions during the preceding summer's activities. I just thought to myself, if you don't do this now, how do you live with yourself for the rest of your life? How do you explain not stepping up and acting on behalf of what you believe in? I was touched by by your book. Um, literally from the first page, and it's not even formally in in the book, it is literally the first page, and it is a copy of a letter that uh, you sent to President <laughs> Eisenhower in 1956, um, ex- like thundering about why it's why you, as a white kid, should have more advantage and be able to go to school simply because simply because you're a white. And I bring this up: the fact that this is even before the very first formal page uh, of your book is because it sets up a, di- a, 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 I don't know, dichotomy is the right word, but you get your civil rights passion there in that 1956 letter. But your first chapter is about the passing of your mother uh, on, on Christmas Eve. And that's where I wanna begin because um, you struggled to, to connect with your mom. And she often told you, and this is a quote, it's a man's world, sweetie, and the sooner you figure that out, the happier you'll be. And that sort of encapsulates how she, how she raised you and how, how she wanted you to be and the expectations that were being set up for you. The first chapter recounts her death when I was 19. And the reason it begins the book is it's really about how unhappy her life was as she tried to find a place and a path and how I saw that even as a young child and was determined not to be shoved into that same kind of set of expectations that prevailed in the 1950s for women of her background and white women in in particular. And so I think it does set up a kind of dichotomy or contrast between what I was shown I ought to be and what I was determined I wouldn't be. And that began really when I was two years old and was told to wear little frilly panties over my regular underpants. And I thought this is ridiculous and it itches. And why do I have to do this? And my brothers don't have to do this. And that began the revolt against my mother that lasted 19 years until she died. We really never resolved our our conflicts. Right. I mean, she groomed you to become a proper, proper Southern lady. And in fact, you, you write in the book how the, like one of the last conversations you had with your mother was about your long hair. Uh, um, I want to read something fr- from your book that gets to this Southern Belle 
notion here. It was a letter. Um, I think this was in your a uh, college recommendation uh, where someone wrote, <laughs> Mrs. Gilpin's bewilderment in connection with Drudy's intellectual gifts. Uh, the It was the counselor. The counselor went on, Mrs. Gilpin is like a hen that has hatched a duckling and cannot understand having a daughter who is not going to be a Southern belle. Could you talk more about about your mother and and that Southern Belle, where that where that came from, because she's from New Jersey. Yes, yes, but I'd love to say a word about that letter because it was such a tryout for a historian to find something like that. I found it in the Bryn Mawr archives when I was working on this book. And when you're thinking about your relationship with people in the past, and you, at least for me as a historian, you don't have documentation; it's just what you remember. You sort of think, could it have been this way? And when I found that letter and thought my college counselor saw it this way, I thought, yep, I wasn't wrong about the, the conflict between my mother's notions of who I should be and my own. Uh, the lady element uh, is very much a part of the South, but I think it also extended to my mother's social class in the North. And so even though she had come from New Jersey and moved to my father's hometown in Virginia, many of the same constraints and expectations prevailed. So this was a set of beliefs that really a, a woman, a lady, uh, should never use the word woman because that put too much emphasis on the physicality of womanhood. Somehow lady as a constructed category was about your demeanor, about your virtues that you cultivated to be deferential, to be always supportive of men, to be soft-spoken. My mother was always telling me I was too bossy. I shouldn't talk like a fishwife. I should tone it down. I shouldn't be ordering people around all the time. And she was particularly bewildered because I was a very good student. It was clear early on that I was quite bright and had intellectual capacities. And this was bewildering to her because this was not who she was. She was not successful in school. She never finished high school. And so I'd argue with her and I'd present these syllogisms that I thought were irrefutable logic. And she'd look at me and just say, you're going to do it because I said so. And she led through intuition, I led through reason, and that intensified the kind of sociological aspects of our opposition, her notion of what I should be as a lady, my notion that that wasn't fair and why couldn't I be like my brothers. Then our temperaments were so um, ill-aligned. And you asked about the long hair aspect. You know, today people have long hair. I, I just think almost every young woman at Harvard has long hair that it gets tied up in a ponytail when she's running or doing exercise, and it's just taken for granted. But in that era, long hair was something hippies had, Joan Baez had. It was kind of dangerous. It was um, unconventional. So when I started growing my hair very long and straight, and the cover of the book that you used in an illustration shows that, this was defiance in its very self. And so we fought a lot about whether I would get my hair cut whether it would get curled, whether it would be uh, presented in an appropriate ladylike way, or whether I would be a Joan Baez wannabe and have my hair long and long and straight. You know, I'm glad you 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 um, raised that point about the fact that even though your mother was born and raised in New Jersey, that because of her social class, and, and this is one thing um, folks learn about from the very beginning. Your both of your parents came from very wealthy families. 
Um, and the expectations because of that social class and standing were very, very high. So her moving from New Jersey to v Virginia in terms of social class was not um, um, different. And also you do write about, um, even more extensively in the book, about your mother and her um, feeling that there was a difference between women and ladies. And, and you write pretty bluntly and starkly um, that according to your mother, basically, and I'm quoting from your book, black people were women, I must be a lady. Um, and I, I, I bring this up because um, you showed your both your fem feminism bona fides and your racial awareness at nine years old. Um, this goes back to that letter to, to Eisenhower, but you describe it as an epiphany. Talk about this epiphany. Uh, I was nine years old and I was being driven home from school by an African-American man who worked for my family. And among his many responsibilities was picking us up at school and driving us to the dentist or piano lessons or wherever we might need to go. And so we were coming home from school one day and the radio was on and it was in the aftermath of Brown v. Board, which caused quite a uproar in the state of Virginia in particular around the requirement that schools be integrated. The senator, senior senator from Virginia, Harry Byrd, who came from our county, developed a plan that he called Massive Resistance, which advocated that Virginia should close its public schools rather than integrate them. And so there was much hurrah and debate around this and argument, and it began to make issues of race visible in a way they hadn't been before. People were talking about elements of the racial structures of my society where they had previously maintained silence and kept them in place through custom rather than through overt discussion. And so suddenly I was hearing these things that I had never understood before. And one of them that I heard on the radio that day was that schools were, were segregated by design. And so I asked the African-American man who was driving me, if I were black, I couldn't go to my school anymore. Is that true? And he said nothing. And then I said, if I painted my face black, I wouldn't be able to go to my school. He said nothing. He knew it was dangerous to be talking about race with a little white girl. But his silence to me meant assent. I felt if that hadn't been true, he would have contradicted me. And I was outraged because a refrain of my childhood was, it's not fair. I had three brothers. I was constantly saying whatever I wasn't allowed to do that they were allowed to do or whatever I had to do, like wear a little frilly clothes that they didn't have to do. It's not fair. Well, this seemed to me like the biggest unfairness I'd ever heard of. And so I went home and I was so upset. I went and I, I was upset also with those who hadn't told me this was true. So I didn't go ask my parents about it because I knew they had been withholding this truth from me. And so I went home and I decided I was going to write the president. And I picked up my little pencil and I wrote the president. And that's the frontispiece of the book, because I found this letter in the early 2000s. I thought, did I really write that letter or did I make it up? And so being a historian, I thought, well, it should be in the National Archives. What well, was in the Eisenhower Library is still in the Eisenhower Library. I only have copies of it. And they provided it to me. And I was many, many, many decades later reunited with my nine-year-old self in the form of this letter 
ordering Eisenhower around. <laughs> right. With perfect, um, perfect penmanship, um, not in cursive, <laughs> but all capital letters. And the very last thing you write in the letter is, please, Mr. Eisenhower, please try and have schools and other things accept colored people. And that was the, the, the language, the language of the time. Um, let's fast forward. You, as you said, you were scholastically light years ahead of your mother, and you go to Bryn Mawr, Women's Liberal Arts College, became very active in the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam War um, uh, movement. Can you explain um, what you call Bryn Mawr feminism? Bryn Mawr was a women's college with very strong intellectual traditions. And I just underscore something that I think a lot of people younger than me don't know, which is when I was going to college in beginning in 1964, Princeton, Dartmouth, Yale, none of them took women. And so the Seven Sisters Women's Colleges were a, a very popular and strong choice for young women. And Bryn Mawr was one of those often seen to be the most intellectually committed. It had its own little graduate school. And it believed that the women who came to Bryn Mawr could do anything. They were as smart as any men in the world. And Bryn Mawr would prepare them to go out and compete with those men and better those men, I believe, was the assumption. Mm -hmm. But this was a kind of feminism that on one level empowered us, but didn't leave us any understanding of the category of woman and the fact that there were systematic hurdles that were in place, even for the most gifted women. So when we all were launched into the world, I think many of us found with great surprise that even if we were supremely excellent, there were often forms of discrimination that kept us out of places like law schools or uh, medical schools or the best internships or the best law firms or the best PhD programs, whatever it might be. And so the feminism made us strong because we thought we were better than anybody, but it was very elitist in that for the rest of women who were not us, this was not a very liberatory philosophy. And even for those who were outstanding that Bryn Mawr labeled to be outstanding, and there were still hurdles and obstructions and discriminations that we would find in our way. Now, during your time, during your time there, I mean, as I said before, you got very active, very um, socially active um, protesting. In 64, at the age of 16, uh, you joined an integrated student group traveling through the Deep South on racial reconciliation missions. Um, first, did your did your mom, did your parents know about that? Uh, and if they did, what was their reaction? Well, one of the reactions of my family to this book, seeing the whole story laid out in a narrative, um, and one of the most notable of the reactions came from a late 80s aunt I have, a kind of remaining member of my parents' generation. And she read the book, totally approved of everything, and just said, I still can't understand why your parents let you do this stuff. And I don't know why they did either, except a couple of possibilities. One, my mother, who was charged with all responsibilities for children in our family, was getting increasingly ill, as described in the first chapter where, where she dies. And so perhaps she just her effort to control me was weakening in face of her own physical disabilities. But I also part of it was just if 
these activities had some kind of imprimatur of legitimacy. And this happened through links with Quakers and uh, um, quite respectable Quaker leaders who were affiliated with Quaker schools. Um, if it had that imprimatur, they were just glad not to have me at home bothering them all summer. And better I go do all these things somewhere else rather than organize a demonstration in my own hometown or cause uproar somehow at home. So I think part of it might have been wanting to get me out of the house, but it, it's a little surprising in retrospect. And none of us, my brothers, my aunt, me, I just haven't figured out entirely why I was lucky enough to be allowed to do this stuff, which was so formative in my life. Right. Allowed to do things like go to Selma and uh -huh. march um, and march with John Lewis and so many others um, after Bloody Sunday. They didn't. Did they one? Did they know you went? To, well, this to, was to join this in that was, march. They didn't know the summer in the South. They did know about. But the Selma March happened when I was a first year student at Bryn Mawr College and Bryn Mawr in its belief in strong women gave us a lot of independence, especially considering that it was 1964 and five during my freshman year, not 2023. So they simply said, if you're gonna be out overnight, tell us where you're gonna be. So I signed out, I can't remember if I signed out to Selma, I couldn't have done that. I must've signed out to my boyfriend's house and he and I borrowed a car and drove to participate in the Selma March that followed on Bloody Sunday. And I felt I had to do this when I saw the heads being bloodied on the Pettus Bridge, when I heard Martin Luther King say that Americans should come and bear witness, when I thought about the people I had gotten to know the summer before, young African-American activists in the South who had been my companions during the preceding summer's activities. I just thought to myself, if you don't do this now, how do you live with yourself for the rest of your life? How do you explain not stepping up and acting on behalf of what you believe in? So I cut my midterms, drove to Selma, participated in the march, and then came back and dealt with the aftermath of my academic derelictions. <laughs> so as I mentioned in the intro, this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is your third book. Uh, Necessary overall? Yes. Actually, it's oh, seven overall. Seven overall. Oh my. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm thinking of two of your seven in particular. Um, the one from 96, Mothers of Invention, Women of the Slave Holding South in the American Civil War, mm -hmm. and your book from 2009, uh, This Republic of Suffering Death in the American Civil War. And I bring up those two books because, I mean, you're an historian. You, you write books about the Civil War and, and, and the American South. But <laughs> what did you uncover? by making yourself the subject of your book. I wanted to write this memoir as not something that just came out of my memories, but instead situated me in a larger historical context. So part of what I uncovered was understanding better some of the forces that I had just thought were created by my family or were created by me, but I could see them as part of larger patterns in American life. For example, when I thought about my mother and her abnegation of herself in devotion to children and family, despite her misery at having to, to abnegate herself, 
it fits so perfectly with Betty Friedan's explanations of the forfeited self, a concept that was very widespread in the early 60s and uh, had an enormous influence on white women of the middle and upper classes. So I could see that she wasn't just one person, but rather part of a, of a larger pattern. And then there were things about my life that I could see um, were also part of larger patterns. One was Sputnik. I remember when Sputnik was sent into space by the Russians in 1957. I was absolutely terrified. I thought that was going to fly over my house and drop bombs on me while I was sleeping. And so I decided I was only going to sleep on my back so I'd see the bombs before they fell. Uh, I've often thought how strange, what a peculiar little child I must have been to have such terror. But then when I began to read more widely, I realized that this was a transformative moment in American life. And for example, I found a wonderful quote from Stephen King, who's almost exactly my age. He has a birthday right around today or yesterday or right around here somewhere. And he felt the same way. He felt this was momentous because we had always been told America was the greatest. He phrases it as, I think, the fastest gun in, in the world. And, you know, we were going to um, shoot them all down and be in charge of the world like the cowboys he adored in, in Westerns. And suddenly it wasn't true. And suddenly here was another reason to mistrust our parents that they had fed us a seeming bill of goods about American dominance in science, technology, and every other dimension of life. And I believe that these disillusions, the one around Sputnik, the one around the parents had never told me that I couldn't go to school because, I mean, that I wouldn't be able to go to school if I weren't white, it instilled a kind of distrust. And I think the 60s come right out of that, that we felt betrayed by certain larger elements in what was told to us and what was reality. So those larger currents formed a basis for me to understand better, if that makes sense to you, understand yep. better where my life was going and, and how individual decisions were affected by these much bigger social forces. Well, that gets to a bigger thing that you, I mean, you're quoted uh, in, in the New York Times um, as asking several questions to this point about being told things by your parents. You, you said, how did my parents believe in segregation? How did the people who lived in Virginia 100 years before believe in slavery? How did they come to defend slavery, you, you told them? And also, um, and also for us today, quote, what is it that we're able to convince ourselves of that blinds us to justice? Jonathan, you have just, yeah, you've just fixed on my whole career as a historian. This is what has animated me from the start. How do people tell themselves things that are so unthinkable to those who come later and see with clearer eyes? And my first book, actually my dissertation, was about people who defended slavery. And I wanted to know how had they convinced themselves to get up in the morning and live in a slave society and think it was just fine? And I'm sure I was projecting backwards my questions about segregation in my own childhood and my own upbringing. How did everyone around me just accept it as the way the world should be? And how do we today blind ourselves to uh what's around us? And can we, by studying history and being really critical students of history, understand better the kinds of self-deceptions that might be operating once again in our own lives? And the book I wrote about death, uh, which you mentioned, 
that's a question that seems a little outside of this, but how my question there is, how did Americans during the Civil War manage to come to grips with those horrors? And what are the fundamental capacities of human beings to fathom and power through something as horrible as as the the enormous death toll of the Civil War. So how is it that human brains take account of the world around them in ways that often enable them to do injustice in, in such powerful ways? Yeah, I just you know, took a look at the clock. We're, we are almost out of time. This is how I know that this is um, that a, a fascinating conversation because the time flies and I have so many questions to ask you. Um, You've said that affirmative action really affirms that history matters. And so how is the past playing a, a role in the, in the present? In many ways, I believe. First of all, we can see the lingering injustices that segregation and racial discrimination have imposed on um, African-Americans in the present. If we take, for example, just laws that prevented African-Americans from getting mortgages and getting in, in in the aftermath of World War II and getting into the housing market and building up wealth ge over generations. That's one lingering reality. Um, we can see lingering realities of discrimination and racial um, prejudice and injustice. I mean, I think the fact that after Barack Obama was made president, the sales of weapons rose significantly. I mean, the foundations of much of the um, nation's history in racial violence is something we have to understand in order to see where we are today. So history lives on in so many of the assumptions that have both affected our brains, but also affect and our, our kind of socialization, but have also affected the very economic bases of our lives by distributing wealth in ways that remain unjust into the present time. And if we don't understand where that comes from, how do we understand how to change it? And how do we understand the urgency of changing it? Mm -hmm. I'm going to squeeze in two, two questions in the time that we have left. As you look at the, the arc of, of history, Dr. Powell, what do you say to young people who, who think that nothing's changed since the days uh, you were on uh, on the front lines. This is part of why I wanted to write this book, because I worry very much about people who say nothing has changed since the Civil War. And certainly injustice has been perpetrated in ways that ranged from lynching to mass incarceration. And there have been kind of evolutionary traditions of injustice that we have not overcome. But it is a lot better now than it used to be. I mean, freedom is better than slavery. And today is better than that world I grew up in. And so I wanted to describe the kinds of repressions that have disappeared. And because they've disappeared, they're almost invisible to the present because they've disappeared so dramatically. But they're not invisible if you go back and look at that world through the eyes of that time. And I hope that after reading my book, people would think, wow, I would not be wanted, want to be dropped back into that world as a woman, as an African-American, as anybody, because those constraints extended across all of uh, Americans in that era, I believe. 
as you said, as you said in the Times interview, if a younger person was parachuted into the 1950s, they would be horrified beyond <laughs> belief. So, Dr. Faust, you um, end your book with the with an epilogue that has a curious title: "Free White and 21." Uh, and you write in in the epilogue that that was almost like it was an all-American catchphrase, and more often than not, said by women. Talk about this free, free white and twenty-one, and why why that was so significant that you have it as your epilogue. Well, I end the book when I turn twenty-one, so that was part of the reason for that that um, last uh, title. It was a phrase that my mother used often. Well, so and so is free white and twenty-one. You notice gender's not mentioned in there. It doesn't say free white and twenty-one, and I became a man. But it assumes that if you're free, white, and 21, then everything else ought to be open to you. And I think that's why you find in American film a lot of women arguing for their place with a phrase that is so appalling because it just puts down others and says, my racial identity, um, my age make me superior to others who may not have the privileges that I have. And so the irony of where gender is and where race is in that phrase, I thought, was was very telling. It was one that I heard so often and was, again, quite startled to see its prominence in film and other places in life, as well as people like Malcolm X speaking out against it because it had such a, a hold on, on the phraseology of the 1950s and 1960s. You know, I had not seen that that phrasing before seeing it in your book and not even knowing the context. I was I was taken aback because it is everything, uh, everything that you say. Drew Gilpin found well, I wish we had even. Oh, finish, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, what I was just going to say there's a link in my footnotes to a little film that was made of film clips using that phrase. Go look at these film clips. It is just astonishing. Wow, I am see that uh, once a professor, always a professor, giving homework. <laughs> Drew Gilpin, <laughs> being Faust, bossy, author of, being bossy uh, to the end. <laughs> <laughs> right, author of Necessary Trouble: Growing Up at Mid-Century. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.